0: First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. If you'll stand for the reading of God's word, please. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Casey. You're the best. My name's Josh. I get to pastor this church, one of the pastors and I get to preach. I also am a dad, and my oldest son is at his uh, second w- summer camp ever, so redemption took 500 500- teenagers to Point Loma, California across the state of Arizona, Flagstaff, Tucson, as Chris said, all over. And we've sent uh, mentors and volunteers and staff. There's hundreds of adults there doing all the work. Uh, The actual camp counselor who's there for all sort of crisis and trauma is a gal from our church, Mia, who's our new kids director. So North Mountain has uh, precious cargo in California right now. So I just want to stop and pray. Those of you that are older and you've watched your kids maybe go through church, you know what it's like when they get to take faith on for themselves. So those of you that are older, I pray that you just spend this moment praying for us younger folks I could call myself young younger than some of you (laughs) whose kids are just entering this phase and it's scary and it's weird and we're like thinking we're trying to do a good job but none of us really think we're killing it at parenting that's just the reality Uh, so let's just stop pray ask God to be with all of our wonderful kids out in California right now so let's pray together God, thank you for our kids that you've blessed us with as a church. Some of us, you've blessed our homes with kids born to us or given to us through adoption and fostering. God, it's a gift, and it's a huge privilege, and it's a major responsibility to train up children in the way that they should go so that when they're old, they will not depart. So I just pray that our kids would be being trained up in the love and discipline of the Lord, that the other adults that are surrounding them right now would be pointing to the same Jesus, the same gospel message, the same cross, the same life in the Spirit that we as a church here point them to. So God, be with our kids, save them, put them on solid ground, and help them start to take some early steps of faith on their own, apart from their watching parents. Lord, we love you. Christ, Christ's name we pray. Everyone said amen. amen. Well, we get to open up a new book of the Bible this morning, 1 John. Why 1 John? Here's simply why. We've been in the Old Testament a lot. If you've been with us for any length of time, we've covered some meaty stuff. We looked at the kings, all those great, glorious, and very fallen kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and then we spent this time in Isaiah, this great man. Me- mythical book this huge poem about this coming servant we've spent a lot of times in the old testament and then we just spent a little bit of time at romans 8 looking at the spirit of god and the love of god and now what we wanted as church leaders when we decided to preach this as we planned for it last year is we wanted to hunker in on a simple letter about god about jesus and some practical how to follow Jesus' tools. That's what we're doing today. So John is written by the Apostle John. He's called the beloved disciple. He's called John the Elder. He was an elder at the Church of Ephesus. He's the son of Zebedee, sons of thunder, James and John. They're the knuckleheads who are always fighting, like, who's the best, who's the best, who's the best? This is this guy. He's one of Jesus' closest friends. Peter, James, John are with Jesus in his most crucial moments. He's an important figure in history. He's written a lot of the Bible, the Gospel of John. First John, Second John, Third John, and then the craziest book in the Bible, Revelation, is written by this man as well, which Revelation is the next book we'll jump into after we're done with this book. So this is the Apostle John. He's a precious man to learn from. And here's one just unique insight into his life. He's one of the only disciples, if not the only one, who was allowed to get into old age. Most of them were murdered, martyred, killed in horrific ways for their faith in Jesus. But John got to go off to an island and die of natural causes as he penned these books. So he got to sort of live out the fullness of life after meeting the risen Savior. And here's the themes of John, just so you know, those of you who like, like me, I was a math teacher, I like logical this, then this, then this. This is not how John is wired. John is more cyclical. He just kind of goes through these cycles and he cycles through these themes over and over again. This book has two major messages in it. If you see there, Casey read verse 5. It says, this is the message we have heard from him. And then if you jump over to chapter 3, verse 11, just to show you how this book is structured. This is the second message. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning. So go back. So he has two messages, and just so you know, they don't logically go A, B, C, D. It's sort of message one, God is love, God is light, God is love, God is light, God is love. Message two, similar, God is love, God is light, God is love, God is light. That's what John, it's a very simple, repetitive book. Those of you who love like deep theology, which is me, you're not going to get big, giant theological words. You're going to get repeat, love life light repeat love life light why John's older when he writes this I think he sort of stripped away the the unnecessaryness of life and this is what he has to say to us as an older man this is what it's about it's about this Jesus Christ who I've met so here's my message this morning I'm calling it just Christianity basics discipleship 101 it's who we follow it's why we follow him and how we follow him, who we follow, why we follow him, and how we follow him. So I want to pray and just, we've got people in here who don't know Jesus, who are like, do I want this? We've got people in here who are struggling to follow Jesus. We all need this. So I want to pray again. I know you're like, it's praying a lot. It's a church. That's what we do. I want to pray and just ask John's wisdom, inspired by the spirit, to meet us in this message, in this whole book. So let's pray. God, I love sitting across from older men who have lived longer than I, who don't have an anxiousness, who don't have a a heart of trying to prove themselves, but they're settled, especially men of faith. And that's what we have as we sit with John's words, a man of faith, a man who touched, who heard, who listened to, who walked side by side with Jesus Christ. And now he writes to us. Two thousand years later, we these words still are needed. So God simplify the faith. Make us so keen on Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. That's what we want. That's what we need. Make that happen again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so who? Why? How? And just what's fascinating in 1 John, just so you know, 1 John has this backdrop that he doesn't address a lot. There's false teachers going on. It's a very noisy time to be alive. It's a particularly noisy time to be a Christian because Jesus had risen from the grave. This is about 100 AD and now all these people are popping up who have stuff to say about Jesus Christ and a lot of it is false. There are false teachers rising up all over. In Second John 1 7, here's what John says. You don't need to turn there. Here's how he describes the cultural landscape. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such one is the deceiver and they are the antichrist. So John's world is filled with misinformation. Sound familiar? In trying to understand what's true, what's false. And as an older guy... He does not start off or spend much time attacking all the misinformation. playing whack-a-mole with all that's out there. He dives right in to talk about Jesus. There's just something to be seen there. You older men. Like I'm 40. I just had dinner with my best friends. They're all 40s. And I see there's a, there's a fork in the road for us. We are getting grumpier, more callous, fatter, harder to be around. And we can get together and we can take one path towards fatter, more callous, more grumpy. Rightfully so, because there's suffering, like big time suffering going on. Or we can choose the path of Jesus and joy in the midst Of a hard world. And that's what John models by how he jumps into this book. He does not attack the Gnostics, which is this huge undertaking going on this time, where there's this secret knowledge. How do you get to God? It's this Gnostic theology where only the special people get the secret knowledge of God. That's all over in the water that he's swimming in. You got other people saying Jesus did not really have a body. He was more like a hologram, like Jesus, God, is spirit. God can't be flesh because flesh is bad. And that's like trickling. All the churches John is overseeing has all this misinformation. He could just and be grumpy and callous, but he jumps in and he talks about that which he loves more than anything. Jesus Christ. Let's just read who he follows. Verse one and two. This is the apostle John, Jesus, dear friend that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life was made manifest and we have seen it testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was from which was with the father and it was made manifest to us what does he want to talk about he wants to talk about Jesus. In this first sentence there, that which was from the beginning. If you've been a Christian a long time, that probably rings some bells. You're like, I've heard that before. Wherever you heard it, you heard it in the other book that John wrote, the Gospel of John. Here's how the Gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, describing Jesus. All things were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. What is John saying? Jesus is God, period. So if you have Jehovah's Witness friends, neighbors, family members, this is the verse that you sort of arm wrestle over. Is it really saying what I think it's saying? Yes. It's saying Jesus was not made. He's the one who made all things. He was in the beginning. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. Jesus is God. And John opens up this letter in the midst of bad theology everywhere claiming Jesus really, really isn't who he says he is. And he says that which was from the beginning, namely Jesus. Jesus who is God. And then how does he describe? Just listen to the words John uses to describe his relationship, which we have heard which we have seen, and just to be clear, with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched, and just to be clear, not in a spiritual sense, with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What words does he use to describe? Lots of sensory language. Now why would he do this? Two reasons. One is all the false teachers who claim that God cannot be in the flesh and therefore they create these false religious followings. He says that which was from the beginning. I touched him. I heard him. I sat with him. God in the flesh, I was with. So he's sort of just subversively shooting arrows at all the bad theology. But more than that, here's why he says it this way. Because this is exactly how it happened. John saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. He touched Jesus. He experienced Jesus personally. That's why he writes it this way. Just to give you, I don't often do this, so you really can't be all that mad with me, but... I want to bounce around the Bible. Just I want to see John's, just an overview of John's life with Jesus, so we see where this is coming from. So first off, go to Mark verse chapter one, verse sixteen through twenty. It's not going to be on the screen, because I actually want us to get in the Gospels a little bit. So go to Mark. Chapter one. Let's just get an overview, a quick snapshot of John's life. Through the lens of his relationship to Jesus. Verse 16 through 20. This is when Jesus is first calling these guys. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting an net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. John was a fisherman. And this Jewish rabbi shows up one day and says, hey, come follow me. And he says goodbye to his father and everything he always knew, and said, I'm following this guy. This is John writing First John. Go to Mark chapter 5 now. And then throughout the ministry, Jesus lets John have unparalleled access to him and his ministry. This is one of the most beautiful stories in the scriptures. If you watch The Chosen, it's one of the best episodes, Healing of the Daughter. Mark chapter 5, verse 35 through 41. So while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. So we've got a lot of cute little girls running around our church. One of the fathers comes to Jesus. My daughter's dead. He put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with them, John being one of them, and went in where the child was, the dead child, and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And she arose. And John's standing there. What the? Go to Luke. Chapter 9. Verse 28. This is another moment where the only people on earth to see this happen would be Jesus and these three guys, Peter, James, and John. Verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray, and he was praying. The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one those days anything of what they had seen. So when John's saying, I've touched him, I've heard him, I've seen him, he was in the room when a dead girl got out of bed. He was here when the transfiguration, whatever that means, Jesus sort of pulling back the curtain on his full divinity. And he doesn't tell anyone. And now, jump over to the Gospel of John. And I would say, as a thesis on John's life, this is probably the event that stuck with him as pointedly as anything else. John chapter 13, verse 1 through 6. We taught through the gospel, John, as we launched this church two years ago. This was one of my favorite passages. But this is the washing of the feet. And why it's significant is John's like flying through these stories. Jesus does this, Jesus does this, Jesus does this. And then you get to this moment where he's washing feet. And John like slows down as the author and like makes note of everything that Jesus did in that moment. It's like, what moment have you had with another human where you can picture every move and gesture that they made in that moment? This is that for John. Verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of his world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and he was going back from God, to God, rose from supper. John's replaying in his head. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And he said, what I'm doing, you don't understand, but afterwards you will understand. And John's watching. And then John has his feet washed. So when John says, I've heard, I've seen, I've touched, he's talking about Jesus Christ, this is the center of John's life. This is the center of Christianity, Jesus. This is the center of the universe. And here's what we all need to know. Jesus can be the center of your life. But John does not want to get into religious arguments. He wants us to see Jesus. I've seen him. I've touched him, I've heard him. And now he says this, verse two, back to First John. I could spend all day just walking through the Gospels looking at Jesus, but let's get back to what we're supposed to be teaching. Go back to First John. How does that life, which John so intimately knew, get passed on to us? Verse 2, that life was made manifest, meaning revealed. That life was revealed, and we've seen it, and now testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. How do we get to experience what John experienced? We listen to that which is proclaimed. Very simply, I'll say it this way. You meet Jesus Christ in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John. Those who saw and heard and touched firsthand. And you meet Jesus in those accounts. That's how we meet him. Jesus knows that's, if you could pick, I want to sit there while Jesus is raising a dead girl and I want to watch him wash the feet of of those who are going to betray him. Or I want to read about them in a book. Which one would we pick? This one. That's why Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen, yet still believe. But this is what we have. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So here's my pastoral exhortation. Spend more time in the Gospels. One thing I'm doing this summer, I'm going to send it out in our newsletter this week, but I cop hand, old school, hand copy parts of the Bible for my summer, just rhythm. Last year I did Proverbs. It's a lot. Long time. I'm just going to do the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5 through 7. I'm going to write by hand so I can just be with Jesus this summer. Where do you meet Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What is the center of all that John has to say? It's Jesus Christ who he touched, who he heard, who he experienced. Period. This is what discipleship is. It's centering on Jesus. Now here's the follow-up question. Well, what's in it for me? It's not a bad question to ask. It's how we navigate life, all of us. Josh, do you wanna to go to your mother-in-law's? Well, what's in it for me? Okay, we all do this mental math. Faith, whatever faith tradition you're from, we're all the same. We do the, the teenagers out in Point Lama, they're doing the mental math, they're like, if everything they're saying about this Jesus and I choose to follow him, what does that mean? Like, is it worth it? John has big words to say about the worth itness in verse 3 and verse 4. Why do we follow Jesus? Let's read verse 3 together. That which we have seen, And heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Why is John writing these? Two reasons. Fellowship with us. And he says fellowship. That's also with the Father and the Son. That word fellowship is a very just fun word to say. Koinonia. It's all over the New Testament. The word fellowship for me is just a struggle because it's such a churchy word. Like people who say, do you want to come to my house and fellowship? My answer is always no, because it's like, whatever that is, I don't want any part of that. But the Bible says fellowship a lot. So I have to repent of my hatred of weird Christian stuff. But fellowship is this. It's intimate communion. The closest thing on earth is a really good marriage fellowship koinonia we share everything have everything in common acts describes the early church as having koinonia they had all things in common money resources time everything was koinonia and john says we can have koinonia with me and with the father and with the son intimate relationship but more than that verse four here's his main reason and we are writing these things so your joy may be complete why do we follow Jesus? Because it's where we get joy. Period. If it's any other reason, none of us want that. I was at this preaching seminar a couple years ago, and the guy was trying to teach a point about creativity. So he had us all sit down, didn't give us anything, just said, All right, ready, be creative, go. We're like, What? Like, you can't just be creative. He's like, All right, let me give you some boundaries. And he says, Use the book of James in this setting, da da da. Now be creative. Creativity needs boundaries to be creative within. Similarly, if I said, Hey, Chris Smith, be joyful. Mercer, be joyful. You're like, All right. You can't just be joyful. Like creativity needs boundaries, joy needs a focal point. That which to look at, to experience, to draw out joy. Like our kids. Ozzy had a sleepover with Porter. Watching Ozzy and Porter, there is nothing more joyful in the entire world than watching those two five-year-olds talk about life so confidently. It's just like, I could watch that all day. It fills my heart. At dinner with my dear friends that I've known my entire life, just having tacos and enjoying laughing, joy. A great time with your spouse. Those of you who have grandkids, like watching your grandkid and all their delight, what happens? It's joy. You don't just will yourself to joy. You experience joy by focusing, pursuing, going after something else that brings you joy. And John says, I'm writing these things so that your joy may be complete. How joyful are you right now? Part of it, a big part of it, might be the fact that you're not following Jesus. Maybe at one point you made a decision, but currently it's like not on your radar. John says, I write these things so that your joy may be complete. Full. That word complete means complete. Full. Full. And that's unique to all other religious expressions in the world. My Muslim friends, the key word for them is submission. Why do you do this? Because I'm submitting to Allah. Just general, like, bland Christianity in America. Like those people that come to church just because it's sort of in their cultural bones. Why do you do that? If you had to, like, strip it all down and get to the essence, it's, I think I'm supposed to be a good person. the best I can be, and I think God might bless me if I'm a decent person. Lame. Or take religion, just secular humanism, which is the main religion of the air, which says be you, 100% authentic you. That's crushing our young people. Christianity says something different. Follow Jesus, and in so doing, your joy will be complete. Period. And just so you know, if you're a Christian in this room, this is not a guarantee that this is on your mind or in your heart as a motivation in your faith. I became a Christian at 18 years old. 23 years old is the first time this got on my radar. Five years I spent following Jesus out of duty, out of the fact he had forgiven me of my sin, but there was nothing in my mind that thought, you know what, the guy on the other side of all this, when I meet him, is actually a joyful god or person i grew up in a catholic setting i grew up with parents who fought a lot i grew up with like not not like a joyful center to anything and i'm in texas in grad school reading through the bible for the first time in my life some of you have heard this story and i get to psalms and i read psalm 16 in your presence talking about god talking about jesus is fullness of joy And I've never had a bigger light bulb go off in my head than that. Even my conversion was not that big of a light bulb for me. It was God is the happiest being in the universe. And what he wants for me is joy. Not like a cheap joy where you overlook all the actual suffering in, but like real, at the center of it, he wants my joy. Jonathan Edwards is one of the best theologians talking about God and his joy and he says this. Happiness is the end I'll say goal of all creation. For certainly it was the goodness of the creator that moved him to create. Notice what he's saying. Why did God create anything out of his goodness, his joyfulness? And how can we conceive of any other end proposed by goodness than that he might delight in seeing the creatures that would be us he made rejoice in that being that he has given them? What's he saying in all his Puritan language? Why did God create anything? Because he's so good and so joyful. If that's true, why would God have any other end for us in this room as Christians than our complete joy? That's what God wants. That does not mean you're going to get everything you want the way you want it, when you want it in your life. Quite the contrary, we all know. But ultimately, his motivating factor in his relationship is your joy being complete. Why do we follow? Because our joy, John says, I write these so that our joy may be complete. It takes us to our final question. We'll wrap up here. How do we actually follow this Savior? I want to read verse 5 through 10. And make a few observations. Verse 5. Jesus is the center. The reason is joy. Here's his simplified message of what the Christian life is. This is the message we have heard from him. Proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is, like I said, very simple. This is a bunch of conditional statements. He makes a statement in verse 5. Here's his banner statement. This is the message. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then verse 6 through verse 10 is a bunch of if, then, if, then, if, then, if, then, if, then. All tied to this. God is light. There is no darkness in him. Just to give you a chart. If you've got good eyes, you can see that. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship but walk in the darkness, we're liars. We're not practicing the truth. Verse 7. If. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Verse 8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's like the worst kind of deceit. We're like we're even deceiving ourselves. That's how icky sin is. It's not just lies out there. It's we're lying to ourselves and we don't even see it all the time. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar now, being God, and we prove that the word was never in us. Again, John is not complicated. God is light. In him, there is no darkness. You can walk in the light, or you can walk in darkness. Those are your options, and here's how he unpacks it for us. So here's, I mean, just the benefits of walking in the light. Verse 7, we have fellowship with one another. Go back, not yet. We have fellowship with one another. The blood cleanses us. Verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Like, those are amazing benefits. The opposite is a bunch of stuff none of us want to be a part of. We lie, and we're not practicing the truth. Verse 8, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And verse 10, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. So here's John's final statement in this early chapter. Walk in the light where God is. Or walk in darkness? Now here's the question. Which one am I walking in? Like some of you sinned on the way to church today. Raise your hand if that's you. Like you, <laughs> you we got a few. Like how, how, do I, how do I know I'm walking in the light and not walking in darkness? Like this is a serious deal. In the, this slide, I think this is how it makes sense to me. Verse 7 verse 9. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. Verse 9 is basically a s- similar said sed- sentence with different wording. What does he replace walking in the light with? Verse 9, if we confess our sins. So to simplify it, are you walking in the light? Are you walking in darkness? Here's how I'd say it. If you're walking in the light, you are confessing your sins. If not, you're one version of those other verses. You're lying, you're lying to yourself, you're lying about God, you're, you're building your life on a lie. And I don't want to talk about salvation yet in the end of all this, just your current reality. When is the last time you confessed your sins? If this is true, the way you walk in the light is by confessing your sins. The word sin is used all over this. The word sin is harmadia, it's missing the mark. It's like, I'm a, I like to shoot my bow. It's you hit the mark. That's good. And if you miss the mark at all, that's a sin. So I want to end our time with just a few questions to lead us into a communion together. But how do you know if you're missing the mark? Here's the first thing. You should know the mark. Here's what Christians are notoriously bad at. Knowing the mark. If I ask you, how's your life going right now? Like, how how are you and Jesus? If I, all right, let's do do a meeting, pastoral meeting, and I line you up one by one, and we go back in the office back there, and the, the simple question, how are you doing? Just from my experience, I don't know. Not very good. Well, why not? 99 out of 100 times, it has something to do with your sort of spiritual discipline life with the Lord. I'm not reading my Bible and I'm not praying. So I'm not doing good. The Bible never uses those as like the mark. The mark is love. Self-denying, self-sacrificing love. So let's ask again, how are you doing? Know the mark. How is your love for God and for others, Is your love for God growing? Is your love for your spouse growing? Is your love for your neighbor who is so annoying growing? If not, you are missing the mark. That's it. Jesus is not complicated on the mark. It's love. That's the first thing you need. Know the mark. Look at where you are in comparison to the mark. I'm called the love my spouse, my kids, my grandkids, my neighbor, my enemy—like, pick a pick a person, pick a situation, pick a work situation in your life, and just like, ask yourself through the lens of love, how am I doing and loving? That's how Christians navigate and assess their life. Here's the third thing I'd say: invite others, ask others to tell you are where you are in comparison to the mark. This is where very few Christians get to because it's scary. It takes vulnerability, humility, and trust for other people to be able to speak into your life, especially the darker areas. Hey, like, where am I not hitting the mark? You notice anything in my life? Fourth, this is just my... I didn't grow up in the church. I'll put it in parentheses so it's not like a real point, but it is a real point. Don't hide behind lame Christian accountability. Christians are the lamest people in the world when it comes to using language to defer and deflect reality. I got some accountability partners. What does that mean? You know, we talk about our stuff. Like, what stuff? You know, all the stuff. Oh, really? Like, all the stuff? Very few Christians want to pursue real accountability. That's just facts across the board. Like, here's where I see it a lot. Like, money. Like, how many people get access to how your money's going out? Why is that? Because we don't really want to be seen because we're human and we're scared. But John says, if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, fellowship with one another, Jesus will cleanse you of all your... I'm not saying this, you're not going to, like, snap your fingers and walk out of here and do this, but just don't tag on any sort of cheesy Christianity to whatever you think you're calling accountability. I can sniff it miles away. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's one of my spiritual gifts because I did not grow up in the church. I married a girl who grew up in the church and she'd say stuff and I'd say, that's dumb. (laughs) She'd talk about growing up at a Christian high school and they'd have prayer time and the kids would lift up unspoken prayer requests. And I'd say, what is an unspoken prayer request? It's just a Christian kid's way to like speak into that moment. Dumb. If you're a Christian school kid, don't say that. That's dumb. Take your unspoken and speak it to Jesus, but don't bring it out in public. That's dumb and lame. Like, cheesy Christianity. Like, I want... Number five, sorry. (laughs) Confess that you missed the mark to real people using real examples, not I just, you know, sometimes I language, 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 language without saying anything. To this person, to this situation, to this kid, to this aunt, to this in-law, this thing I did, I'm sorry. That's confession. I was not as loving as I should have been in this situation. That's how we grow as Christians. The Apostle John is not a complicated man. Like I said, we're not going to be wowed with his theological insight into life. We're going to be faced with the same themes over and over and over again. We're going to be faced with this same reality that we have a God who can be touched, who can be seen, who can be felt through his word. In verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your sins, He is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Nowhere else in the world does somebody make such a lofty claim other than this book right here. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, let the simplicity of John's message pierce us let the simplicity of the light and dark imagery stick with us. Let the simplicity of how he describes his relationship with you inspire us that he heard you and he touched you and he walked with you and he was forever changed. So, God, let these wise words from an older man pierce our hearts. Let the Christianity 101 of who we follow, Jesus, of why we follow for joy being complete and how we follow, we walk in the light by confessing our sins. Let let us not try to graduate past that as if we've arrived somewhere, but let us live into those realities, knowing you, having our joy complete, and continuing to learn how to walk in the light as you are in the light. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.